Hello and welcome to this Rash Decisions podcast where we'll be looking at skin-related issues and treatments in an interesting and informed way. I'm Dr. Roger Henderson, a GP with a long-standing interest in this area of health. And I'm Dr. George Moncrief. I was also a GP, though I retired from my practice, and I was the chair of the Dermatology Council for England. Today's podcast is the third and final episode on atopic eczema. Last episode, we talked about emollients, and in today's, we'll continue covering treatments, including topical steroids and immunomodulators. We'll also look at the roles of vitamin D and antihistamines in the eczema management process, as well as when to refer to secondary care. Now, very often when we're when we're using emollients, um, all of us in practice and all of us listening to this podcast will have also um, used topical steroids uh, for whatever reason in our patients with eczema and this can be a a source of some concern for some healthcare practitioners especially if people are using them on a regular basis so if it's okay with you George I think it is worth spending a little time just looking at, at topical steroids you know stepping up stepping down you know what are legitimate concerns about the long term use of topical steroids but i suppose i'll start off by saying um certainly very short courses of low strength steroids are not going to cause any significant problems with the skin would that be fair i think no i think that's entirely fair i i I totally agree with that The, the topical steroids have been around since the early 50s and would you believe the first topical steroid is older than paracetamol uh, they, they have stood the test of time and they're clean, they don't smell and they really do work. And there's nothing more frustrating for a healthcare professional to see somebody with a condition that they keep coming back and you've prescribed or recommended a topical steroid and you discover that for whatever reason they haven't used it and they're coming back for more advice and they're not getting better because they haven't used the treatment we've recommended. But just a few tips about topical steroids. I personally only ever prescribe these as an ointment. Ointments stay in place. Ointments have a very low water content and therefore don't need preservatives. And they're probably going to end up having maybe short courses, but many short courses. The the average person with moderate atopic eczema has nine flares a year. And each flare is likely to end up with between two and four weeks of topical steroid. So that's nine months of the year they're using a topical steroid. If you've got severe eczema, it's often more than 11 flares per year. So they're almost on continuous topical steroid. So I don't want to be putting preservatives and things like that on it. Emollients have a much better, um, sorry, ointments have a much better emollient effect. They, They prevent water escaping. And... The only situation where I wouldn't use an ointment is in particularly moist, for example, flexural eczema in the groin, where an ointment would just slip off. It wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't get, penetrate the skin adequately. But you only need to prescribe a steroid once a day. I never suggest to patients they need to put it on more than once a day. And putting a sticky ointment onto their eczema at bedtime is rarely an issue. So I prescribe them as ointments to use once a day. They're only intended to be used for short courses. Um, and then I 
if things are coming under control after a fortnight, I don't just suddenly stop. You, you mentioned step down, but what I, I tend to do is I, I step down to weekend therapy. So once it's nicely under control, which is usually about a fortnight, if they have used it adequately and appropriately, and they've made their lifestyle choices that we've changed, uh, changed uh, lifestyle changes that we've described, um, they can drop down to weekend therapy. That's two consecutive nights a week. It doesn't necessarily have to be the weekend, but Saturday and Sunday works very nicely. So they just put it on at weekends. I think it's worth spending some time talking to patients about the fingertip unit. That's the distance from the, the last crease of the finger to the tip of the finger. And that's in an adult very close to being half a gram one of the few really intelligent things in the world of medicine is that every single tube of an ointment or a cream comes with a five millimeter nozzle which means that the little sausage that you squeeze out we can measure its size very precisely and one fingertip unit i.e half a gram covers the skin of two palms so in a child it'll be less than the gram but it still covers two child palms and therefore, a 30 gram tube has 60 fingertip units. And you can roughly work out how long you'd expect the ointment that you prescribed to last. And so you can prescribe the appropriate quantity. There's no point giving somebody 30 grams of hydrocortisone and say, um, apply it to a large area of their skin and expect them to that to last then three months or something. We need to give them the quantities that they, we, we expect them to be able to use between now and when we next review them. And I use, like if I'm going to prescribe a steroid, I want to use the strength that's going to work. So I start strong, um, maybe super potent with something like clobetasol propionate, uh, for example, Damavate, and then work my way down through Mometazone, Elecon, ointment, down to moderately potent topical steroids like clobetazone, butyrate, which is Humavate, or down to um, hydrocortisone. 1% or so. Never prescribe hydrocortisone 2.5%, for example. That's the same equivalent strength as Humavate, but it can cost £80 a tube. So that's one. Don't ever prescribe 2.5% hydrocortisone. It's ridiculously expensive. And we've got Humavate, which is about £2 something. So that's just a thought. But all the way through this, you should be using emollients. And people often ask, which one do you put on first? I don't think it matters whether you put an emollient on first or a topical steroid on the skin first. What matters is you have about a 30 minute, ideally a 30 minute interval between the two. I think probably the most sensible is to put the emollient on first because you're putting that on absolutely everywhere, just stroking it down the body as we described in the last podcast. And then 30 minutes later, you apply the topical steroid to the precise areas where you want that to work. But I do think we need to acknowledge that our patients have concerns about topical steroids and they often are reluctant to use them and often nod and accept that we suggest them to them and then they go away and they don't use them and i share those concerns i think concerns about topical steroids are to some extent legitimate topical steroids will damage the skin barrier and that's the last thing you want in atopic eczema they, they raise the pH, which is not what we want. We want that acid mantle. They degranulate the stratum granulosa, which is where you make the granules that create that skin barrier. They ultimately reduce the number of cell layers in the epidermis, making the skin thinner and making the whole skin effect, barrier effect much weaker. They reduce collagen levels in the dermis, causing striae and ecchymoses and all the other problems you see there. 
and they have fairly broad spectrum, broad brush, blanket immune suppressants. So if you've got any infection in the skin like fungus, um, you aggravate things. So they're not absolutely ideal. And so I, I agree. I could not manage my skin patients without the use of topical steroids, but I like to use them for short, sharp bursts, get things under control, look at the lifestyle, and then look at the other things that we can do to control their eczema. Absolutely. I mean, I think I often make this analogy with my asthma patients. If I've got um, someone with asthma who is needing um, repeat prescriptions, you know, once or twice a month of their um, uh, reliever inhaler, then actually they are being undertreated. They're not being treated correctly. We shouldn't be doing this. And if I've got patients who are repeatedly asking for a repeat of a topical steroid, and I think it's it's important that <clears throat> perhaps everyone listening perhaps could audit or have a look at their patients who are on topical steroids and just seeing if they are being repeatedly given repeat prescriptions without being asked why, then if they've got a patient like that, then again, they are either not using their emollient correctly or their, their eczema is not being adequately treated. So the use of topical steroids can be a useful little marker as to whether their eczema is fundamentally being controlled well in the first place. A really great idea. I love that. A really useful tip. And I think that that would be a great subject for an audit, wouldn't it? It would. It, it, it would be. Now, I suppose one of the things that we start to worry about amongst many with our, our patients with eczema is the patient walking in with infected eczema um and then well what do we what do we do about it um and i've i've got a a, a pretty rough henderson law here which is sort of topical antibiotics virtually never and systemic antibiotics virtually always uh, would i be wrong with have i been wrong over the years with that one well in my book it's topical antibiotics never yep and I cannot remember when I last prescribed a topical antibiotic for eczema. Remember, I was running a community dermatology service where my colleagues were referring their, their, their cases of difficult eczema to me. Mm. Oral antibiotics, and it, all flares are infected. So I really don't see any advantage in doing a swab. There will be staff there. A flare is always infected. But Nick Francis from Bristol did a superb piece of work. And he showed that in primary care, antibiotics do not alter the course of a flare. Wow. So I would keep antibiotics systemically for my patient who is ill. And I see every patient I, I would see, I would make a very conscious decision. Are they unwell, in which case I'm not concerned, or are they ill, particularly in little children, particularly in older people? And if they're ill, I make a decision whether I feel that I can manage them in primary care and they might justify having an antibiotic, but I'm treating the illness. I'm not treating the, the flare. And I think another error, I think I call it an error if, I, if you don't mind, um, I see my colleagues regularly doing is they prescribe flucloxacillin. Um, I don't know if you've ever, particularly for a child, I don't know if you've ever tasted flucloxacillin syrup. It is, it is, it is foul stuff, isn't it? <laughs> 
And so they won't be taking that four times a day. They will not complete a course. They will not. So it, it, it is just a non-starter, frankly. And it's also extremely expensive. Uh, at, at times, the price has gone up again to about £80. Pounds. Um, so it's a very expensive antibiotic, totally unpalatable, and I think not that good anyway. So if I do prescribe an antibiotic, I'd prefer to go for a macrolide, and my favourite will be clarithromycin. And uh, that only needs to be given twice a day, and it's very much more palatable and much less expensive. So my personal choice would be if somebody felt, that, or if, if this was particularly rampant or particularly severely impetigenized, I would consider clarithromycin. I'd, prefer, I'd much prefer to use an antiseptic, actually. Um, if, I, if I think they're having recurrent flares driven by infection, I'd prefer to go in with something like um, chlorhexidine topically, which is dermal, with, along with benzalkonium. Or my absolute favourite would be Octenicare, which can be bought over the counter. That's octenidine in a cream, a very, very lovely antiseptic. So I'd prefer to go in with antiseptics. That's a lovely tip. Uh, that's, that's a really nice, 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 nice tip with that one. The, the, the next the next area we need to think about is actually antihistamines, isn't it? It, it? it is. And again, sort of Henderson's sort of law number 364 uh, with, with, with eczema. Um, again, it's fairly simplistic, but which is sort of antihistamines basically never uh, and vitamin D basically everyone. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. Yep. Antihistamines. Histamine does not mediate the itch in atopic eczema. And that's why we've always said don't use non-sedating antihistamines because they don't work. You're only using antihistamines in eczema to render your patient drowsy so that they sleep a bit better. That's what they're being used for. Hmm. But the problem with the old-fashioned sedating antihistamines like chlorphenaramine or diphenhydramine is they have very, very long half-lives. And therefore, the patient will still be groggy and drowsy up to 24 hours after they've taken it. So they might take it at bedtime and have a good night, well, not necessarily good quality sleep, but they'll have a, a sleep not scratching, which is good news. Um, and the rest of the family can sleep, but they'll still be groggy the next day. They won't get the benefit of medication. They might have an accident driving their car. They'll be under the influence of a drug. So my advice is don't go near antihistamines. The only... Uh, slight sort of question there is that fexafenidine in children has been shown to reduce the level of an interleukin IL-31 and IL in, in children and IL-31 is the um, agent that mediates a lot of the itch in atopic eczema and um, we're actually going to have an IL-31 blocker shortly a biological um, which blocks IL-31 but in the meantime, fexofenidine, uh, which is a nice non-sedating antihistamine, does seem to reduce the levels of that in children. So it might have a, a, some role in, in the relief of itch for that. But yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I love vitamin D. And I don't think you should just take it in the winter. I think you should take it all year round. We use sunlight to treat, or we use ultraviolet light to treat severe eczema. And a lot of that benefit is going to be due to the production of vitamin D in the skin. And Mike Cork, who's a professor of paediatric dermatology up in Sheffield, he, he looked at his inpatients with severe eczema and discovered they were all severely deficient in vitamin D. He gave them vitamin D and some of them, their eczema got immediately better and they were able to go home. So I definitely, like you, recommend vitamin D to all my patients with eczema. And it's very hard to overdose on vitamin D. 
And I, I also encourage them to get a bit of sensible, non-burning, natural sunlight therapy. Perhaps not the children under 11. I, I keep children under 11 in the dark. Um, but <laughs> children over 11, I would say they, they should have some sensible, and, and adults should have some sensible, non-burning um, sunlight therapy. We absolutely agree. And sort of just thinking about fexofenadine there, um, we, we're obviously not talking about um, for all skin conditions. For, for example, I'm thinking of chronic spontaneous urticaria, which is something I think we'll touch on in another podcast. Fexofenadine high dose can be absolutely excellent in, in, in CSU, but certainly in terms of, of eczema, yep, antihistamines, never vitamin D always. And and again, if we're, if we're helping to prevent flares which is i suppose where we we're at now the critically important the critical importance of, of of flare prevention through proper good eczema skin hygiene through proper use of emollients through knowing what to do um if you think there may be a flare developing i think that probably nicely leads on to um again treatments which some gps may not be particularly comfortable in 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 using which are things like tacrolimus and pimecrolimus um in terms of flare prevention personally these can be absolutely fabulous obviously initiated usually by specialists but they can be absolutely wonderful in in turning off flares in people that have previously really been bothered by them i couldn't agree with you more, apart from the fact I don't think they need to be initiated by secondary care. Well, I, I, I agree with that, um, and, and, but I know some, some colleagues who, who perhaps haven't used a lot of them, who, who are slightly wary about initiating, they prefer uh, if they are initiated by, by a dermatologist and, and then they're happy. But I think as a general point, you are right. Um, there is no reason why we can't be uh, have been secondary care secret for far too long and they have been around all this century over 20 years now and they have proved themselves to be fantastic i think i think protopic is in my top three most useful most dramatically effective topical um, treatments we have had this century um, and so the topical immune modulators they're not immune suppressants like steroids and they are licensed for long-term use. So protopic ointment and an and Elidel cream, which is pimecrolimus. Regarding these two products, protopic ointment and Elidel cream, they're both licensed from the age of two years. But with Elidel, there is safety data going right down to three months of age. And so if I had a patient where a treatment with a topical steroid is either inadvisable or not possible, I would certainly consider using Elidel cream. And I have also encountered many patients who've seen consultants with atopic eczema under the age of two who have been prescribed protopic ointment. Clearly the 0.03% product, but I would certainly want to discuss this prescribing of a product out of license very carefully with parents before I just um, gave it to them. If my grandchild had eczema, there's nobody I'd want to be more careful with. I would be a hundred times more comfortable prescribing a topical immune modulator than a topical steroid. I mean, that says it, that, that, that really says it all. And, and there's the old adage, you know, if you're wondering about the best treatment for your patient, 
always think what would I do if it was a member of my family and that's a really nice little Ed memoir well it, it absolutely they, they, they preserve the acid mantle unlike topical steroids they regranulate the stratum granulosa which has been degranulated by the steroids they do not cause any skin thinning they increase procollagen three levels in the dermis reversing some of the skin thinning that steroids cause they are designed for the thinnest skin areas like around the eyelids and on the face or the fronts of the elbows or the backs of the elbows hang on that's where you get eczema because that's where the barrier is at its weakest they do not cause any problems at all to the skin barrier and they you can use them twice a day to get things under control in my experience as well and as efficiently as topical steroids protopics equivalent to betanovate in strength LEDs equivalent to Umivate in strength. Ideal on thin skin areas. And then after two or three weeks, when things are under control, you can drop down to maintenance therapy twice a week, non-consecutive nights. So unlike steroids there, that's a Wednesday night and a Sunday night, just once a day, trivial doses, because you're only using it twice a week. And that will cause flare prevention. And you can do that for as long as you like for years. So. I, I think that there were anxieties about them and, and whether high dose protopic, full dose protopic might cause lymphomas and things. Eczema causes lymphomas untreated. Steroids can cause lymphomas. And yes, possibly topical immune modulators could cause lymphomas in the skin or, or systemically, but no more frequently than topical steroids. And you're not having all the other problems. The only problem with them is that they're relatively expensive. but untreated eczema is expensive referral to secondary care very expensive and and that that leads in nicely i suppose to referral to secondary care and, and, and referral criteria i was talking to a colleague uh, the other day about um the evidence for why gps refer um children uh, to, to pediatricians and it was remarkable the, the studies that we've done most of the reasons why GPs would refer a child into a hospital is a hunch it's just something's not right I can't quite put my finger on it but this child needs to be seen and I suspect in all areas of, of medicine we do a little bit of that but even in dermatology um, we can we can sort of just say this this eczema is just getting away from me this patient is not responding I need to refer in so if we take that as a given there is the hunch referral route um, what about the more formal um, uh, I suppose referral criteria I'm thinking you know poem maybe DLQI are there things that we should perhaps be looking at in a more formal capacity when we're writing that referral letter I suppose the first thing to say is that like eczema hepaticum or eczema coxsackieum would merit pretty urgent same day referral particularly if your patients unwell and if you're not referring them you need to review them in a few hours time to make sure they haven't deteriorated so that's the first urgent referral hmm. but yeah i agree a persistently high poem score or persistently high dl was it a dermatology life quality index dlqi would, yep. would merit you not getting things under control with the advice you've given Somebody who's got very large areas of skin involved, often see that in older adults, um, very severe dry skin and very severe eczema, where you may need to be thinking about second line agents, um, light therapy or 
all drugs, dimethyltrexate or cyclosporine and things like that. So if, if second line treatments might be required because it's just impossible to cover such a large area of skin effectively. I suppose it is having a significant impact on their quality of life. Uh, it hasn't been picked up by poem, so they're telling you that they're not sleeping. Well, that we picked up by poem, or having an impact on education. That's the sort of thing I take into my, my into my decision. Um, but no, I think it's. And of course, then the other thing, the patient is just not responding at all, particularly an adult. Rarely that could be something like mycosis fungoides, and so I've seen that present as eczema for thirty years, managed suboptimally for 30 years and the penny drops someone does a biopsy and hang on they've got mycosis fungoides so if, if it doesn't look quite right it's not behaving as you expect it to the diagnosis isn't clear patients will often expect us to refer them because they want to have allergy tests yes and I think both patch testing and prick testing and other allergy testing plays an incredibly small part in, in the pathogenesis of eczema. So eczema opens the door for patients to get allergies, but allergies driving eczema is uncommon. And looking for an allergy to, to account for their eczema is, is not something that I would encourage at all. Do we, do we, should we be thinking of, of eczema as a lifelong condition? I'm thinking of prognosis now um, and, and what sh we should be expecting the outcome long term. You mentioned that patient with the, with the 30 year history of, of misdiagnosis. What's the, what's the long term um, prognosis with, that you're seeing uh, in your practice over the years with pe people with, with eczema? Well, because eczema is most common in per, per capita, in, in, in per, per age, um, in young children. So it's, it's a disease of preschool age children. And for many of them, they will grow out of it. But 10% continue to go on having eczema and into their adult life. And because we spend so many more years as adults, there are more adults walking around with atopic eczema than there are preschool children. I think if you've got bad eczema in your 20s, the chances are you're going to have eczema, a tendency to eczema for the rest of your life. And you need to make lifestyle changes in the way you wash, the way you use emollients and things like that, because um, otherwise the eczema will, will become a problem. I think if you, once you've got eczema into adult life, in my experience, that's how they're set forever. But certainly in children, the vast majority of children with, with moderate eczema will find that by the time they get to secondary school, their eczema is a lot less severe and it's barely having an impact on their quality of life, but not all by any means. Finally, I, I just think there are a couple of points I want to make. Uh, I saw a child recently who'd had a history of mild atopic eczema. It had recently flared and it had become much more widespread and his father told me it was now unbearably itchy. And furthermore, it wasn't responding from some topical steroids his GP prescribed along with some antibiotics. So I saw this and it needs an instant diagnosis. This is scabies. And when someone has got something that's become unbearably itchy out of, out of all proportion of what they're used to, and it's not responding to treatment, think outside the box. And that needs the whole family treating appropriately for scabies. And then finally, can I draw your attention to the PCDS guidance um, published, late, latest guidance published in September 2019. Some really excellent advice there. So just go again to pcds.org.uk and there you'll see the, the guidance on the management of atopic eczema in primary care. So in summary, um, 
atopic eczema is a chronic relapsing inflammatory disorder with significant comorbidities including arteriosclerosis and psychological problems there's a dual pathology for disrupted barrier and an, an, an abnormal immune response to things going through that barrier pathogens and allergens triggering an abnormal immune response emollients have absolutely pivotal role both as soap substitutes and as leave-on emollients we talk about complete emollient therapy and that is critical to the management of atopic eczema topical steroids address the inflammation brilliantly but long term they damage the skin barrier and have broad spectrum immune suppressing effects and it's certainly in children potent topical steroids like betnamate can cause some pituitary adrenal suppression Topical immune modulators like Protopic and Elidel are ideal primary care options for atopic eczema. You do not need to wait for a specialist to advise you. We can prescribe this in primary care and they provide targeted immune modulation and preserve the skin barrier. And I think generally, I would say avoid antihistamines for the moment completely. And don't forget vitamin D. Yeah. I think um, it was Galen, uh, 2,000 years ago, the father of modern medicine, as he's uh, often called, that said, uh, the doctor is only nature's assistant. Well, he, he was certainly right then, and he's probably absolutely still right now, although um, he didn't have uh, what we have in our armory um, to treat our patients with, with, with eczema, which is perhaps... A blessing, but I think this chat actually highlights just how how vital it is to give every one of our patients with atopic eczema the best possible advice, the best possible treatment, in a well thought through way, and not, if I can use a particular phrase here, make a rash decision that will go badly wrong. So, to everyone listening, we do hope you found this final podcast on eczema informative and interesting. George and I look forward to you joining us for our next Rash Decision episode in three weeks' time, where we'll be chatting about another area of skin health and how to treat our patients in primary care with different skin problems. Once again, we'd also like to thank our sponsor, Apoderm, for all their help in putting these Rash Decision podcasts together. So, until the next time, it's goodbye from George. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.